Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are going to be doing another morbid medley. This time, we're talking about mourning in the animal kingdom. Please be advised, this episode contains mentions of stillborns, body decomposition, necrophilia, and surprise, surprise, cannibalism. And death too. Now let's get on to the show. I'm ready to just dive right in, so. Hello. Hello, hello, people. Hello this week. Uh, We're going to be doing a little something different, as my co-hosts know. So usually on this podcast, we've been talking about humans. Aside from the exception of humans burying pets, as Christia did a few episodes back. Horses. uh, This episode, we're going to be doing a little something different for our morbid medley, our second morbid medley. We're going to be talking about mourning in the animal kingdom. And each of us has selected an animal that we're going to talk a little bit about the mourning or grief behavior that they have exhibited, according to researchers who study them. But first of all, an important thing to clarify before we begin talking about this is what exactly does mourning mean? What exactly does grief or funerary behavior entail? I'm going to throw a definition at you. Mourning, by definition, is the expression of deep sorrow for someone who has died, typically involving certain conventions, such as wearing black clothes, which is what a lot of people do nowadays. Grief, on the other hand, there's a definition of grief according to an anthropologist, Barbara J. King, which goes as follows. Surviving individuals who knew the deceased must alter their behavioral routine, eat or sleep less, act listless, agitated, or attend to their friend's corpse. So working under those definitions, each of us is going to be bringing an animal forward to talk about this topic, grief or mourning or funerary behavior within the animal kingdom. For me, my animal that I've selected is an animal that I've kind of had an affection for, for a long time in my life, and I haven't always been able to explain why I just was attracted and drawn to these animals. And I'm going to be talking about elephants. Woo! Hell yeah, I'm a good elephant. I love elephants. Should uh, we maybe address the elephant in the room? <laughs> the <laughs> elephant? The elephant in the room? Um, and actually, through this research, I've been able to pinpoint a little bit, like, why I like them so much. So let me just dive right in. So elephants have a very matriarchal social structure. So they're led by the female individuals in the family groups and their social bonds are very, very intense and very strong. Subsequently, they become really upset, extremely upset when one of their own dies or even an elephant from another social group or family group. When they die, they also exhibit differing behavior than their normal behavior as researchers have observed. So for example, seeing the bones or carcass of another elephant, a family will stop and investigate the bones, 
even if the elephant was completely unrelated to them. They're interested in the body. They'll do things such as touching the bones gently with their trunks, kind of probing and investigating them, checking out the curves of the bones. They remain very quiet, which is unusual for them. So they're, to our human bias, seems very contemplative, I'd say. Um, sometimes they'll cover bodies with leaves, mud, or grass, kind of a burial behavior, which is something they don't do for live members of their groups. And if the elephant was part of their group, sometimes they will even stay with the body after death for days or even weeks in some cases, which Ooh. is very unusual in the animal kingdom as far as, you know, dead members of the group are concerned. Yeah, the only thing that that reminds me of is the orca that lost her calf off the BC coast and she was toting it around for a while. You're spoiling oh, my shit, sorry. Mariah. I'm accidentally doing spoilers, I'm sorry. <laughs> Too many facts. I have an educational experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the way I want to kind of uh, approach this is just by telling some stories that I came across of elephants and their dead. So... First off, a general story, there's no named elephant in this one. So Martin Meredith, who is a researcher, told this story, and this is a direct quote. The entire family of a dead matriarch, including her young calf, were all gently touching the body with their trunks, trying to lift her. The elephant herd were all rumbling loudly. The calf was observed to be weeping and made sounds that sounded like a scream, but then the entire herd fell incredibly silent. They then began to throw leaves and dirt on the body and broke off tree branches to cover her. They spent the next two days quietly standing over her body. They sometimes had to leave to get water or food, but they would always return. One thing that I want to address before I move on is the idea of the elephants weeping. And this is something that has been, it's a behavior that has been observed in elephants. So they have these glands kind of behind their eyes that, according to researchers who study elephants, in times of strong emotion or stress, they will weep. It's not like necessarily like our crying, but it is thought to be an emotional response and it does kind of look like crying, but it's not coming out of their actual eyes. To my understanding, it's these glands behind. So there are a few photos where you can see it kind of, it looks like tears streaming down the face, but it's just coming out from the spot behind their eyes. The next story I want to tell you is about a, an elephant named Tina. Um, and this comes from a researcher named Cynthia Moss. So this is one of her experiences with elephants. So poachers shot two members of a family group and one elephant died immediately. The other named Tina was still standing, but she was growing weak pretty fast. So two of her family members, Trista and Theresia, and Theresia was actually Tina's mother, they held her upright to try to support her and keep her keep her standing. But Tina was so weak. She was really weak and she fell over and died, unfortunately. Trista and Theresia then continued to try to lift her, but her body was lifeless and it just kept falling to the ground. They tried to feed her grass and Theresia, the mother, put her tusks underneath and behind Tina's head and front quarters and tried to lift her up once again. Eventually... They stopped trying to lift Tina back up again, but they didn't leave her immediately. Instead, they started to bury her in a shallow grave, throwing leaves over her body. And they actually stood with Tina overnight and only left in the morning. And kind of heartbreakingly, 
the last elephant to leave her body was actually Teresia, the mother. So that's one story of this elephant mourning behavior. The second is the story of Eleanor. So this takes place in Kenya in October 2003. A female elephant named Eleanor collapsed. She had a broken tusk, her trunk was swollen, and it had been dragging for a couple days on the ground as they traveled. And her ears and legs were marred from recent falls, so obviously she wasn't doing too well health-wise. Grace, a member of a different social group, tried to heave Eleanor back to her feet as she was weakening. The rest of the herd moved on, but Grace remained with Eleanor for at least another hour until the sun kind of went below the horizon and nightfall came. Eleanor died the following morning at 11 a.m. And after that, her body was visited by five different social groups, so external to her family group, over several days, some completely unrelated to her own social group. So they weren't in frequent contact, which is interesting. As they visited, they would stop, sniff, kind of prod the body, as I said before, that behavior of like investigating what's going on with this body. And even though predators had moved in, the elephants were still close by during daylight hours within a couple hundred meters or so. So that's pretty unusual behavior as well. Next, the story of Damini. And this one is a little different. So this is an elephant that is within a zoo in Lucknow, India, called the Prince of Wales Zoo. And this story occurred in 1999. So Damini, a 72-year-old elephant, had befriended a younger pregnant elephant called Champakali at the Prince of Wales Zoo. Champakali unfortunately died in childbirth and she gave birth to a stillborn calf, so there was no happy outcome there. Um, and zoo officials said that Damini was shedding tears over her friend's body and stood still for a couple days. So remember I mentioned those glands, that's kind of what they observed was yeah. the glands were weeping. For 24 days, Damini barely ate and her legs kind of swelled up and she eventually collapsed. So after that, she was laying still, losing weight, crying. She stopped eating or drinking any water, despite the heat, because India, very hot, you know. Her keepers tried to keep her cool. They kind of built a makeshift tent around her with grass, and they were spraying her with water, and vets were injecting her with glucose and vitamins to try and keep her alive. But unfortunately, she ended up dying. So this is kind of a case of potentially this elephant in this zoo died of grief, of mourning. So that's the thought there of the, the zoo officials and the researchers. And lastly, the story of Big Tuskless. And this is another story from Cynthia Moss, the researcher I mentioned earlier. She's director of the Ambozeli Elephant Research Project in Kenya, actually. So a matriarch named Big Tuskless died of natural causes. And Cynthia Moss brought her jawbone to the research camp to determine the age of this elephant at death. And a few days or a few weeks, I can't remember the exact period of time later. Can I just take a moment to say that Big Tuskless is an amazing name for (laughs) an elephant? Um, I mean, it's, I don't everything, but like, imagine like, you go out and your name is Big Tuskless. Big Tuskless. That's like, that earns you respect. Yeah. Uh, Big Tuskless's family passed through and visited the camp. Um, Out of the several dozen elephant jaws that Cynthia Moss had within the camp, the family beelined right for Big Tuskless's jaw. They spent some time with it, touched it, 
kind of prodded it like the other observed behavior. And then they all moved on except for one elephant, which was Butch, Big Tuskless's son. Which, wow. Uh, he continued to stroke the jawbone with his trunk after all the others left. So maybe it's just my human bias, but to me, I see very clearly this falling under the change of behavior the mourning of a lost loved one, the altered behavioral routine. And that's what the researchers have been saying as well, is that it's very clear to them that elephants' behavior shifts when they encounter a dead member of their species, which, as I said, I identified kind of why I like elephants so much, is they're very emotional creatures, almost with an emotional intelligence somewhat akin to ours. Who's to say how deep it is, but it's not something that's super common in the animal kingdom. And I really, really appreciate that. Also, the matriarchal society, that's fucking awesome too. Hell yeah. They're just very emotional, large, vegetarian (laughs) creatures. And it's awesome. Good for elephants. I'm sad that they're sad. (laughs) I wonder the act of burying, emulating burying a deceased elephant seems really interesting to me. Because I can't think of a reason why they would want to do that. So I almost wonder if they saw humans doing that at some point and that was a learned practice from humans. I don't know for sure if that to me just kind of seems like it. And they're obviously very intelligent creatures. So I don't know. Who's to say? It makes me wonder. Humans are not so separate from animals and the natural world as we'd like to make ourselves believe. So the idea that perhaps at some point elephants or other creatures have picked up behavioral cues from humans and kind of adopted Mm -hmm. them. They're intelligent enough for it to happen. Yeah. Because, I mean, we bury humans for the, like, not everybody buries humans, as we've discovered with this podcast. But in general. Yep. Part of the grieving process is you have a corpse on your hands and it's not always in your cultural practice to keep it around. And I'd argue that most cultural practices tend to, you know, dispose of the body. Maybe not dispose isn't the greatest word, but you know what I mean. Dispose of the body in some way because corpses bring disease and bad smells and just kind of bring the tone of any and room predators. down, you know? And predators, especially. So yeah. the predators in particular, I wonder if it's their attempt to, you know, not necessarily like preserve. Obscure, almost. Yeah, not necessarily to preserve the remains, but to protect it from further taphonomic processes. Mm. That's an interesting thought because I didn't mention this, but throughout the research that I did, it was mentioned that sometimes elephants would bury other bodies as well, not just other elephants, but other bodies they'd come across, but primarily other elephants. So for example, there was a researcher, a traveler, a human researcher, a traveler that was just sleeping and woke up to elephants burying them. Like, oh my gosh, what's going on? <laughs> um, and then the elephants realized they were alive, kind of That's left. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe. I mean, what's interesting about that is that it, it implies that elephants don't understand when something is dead. And I wonder as well, because so I was listening to a podcast about elephants. You were listening to a podcast about elephants? Glitched a sec. 
I was, and I learned that while elephants, of course, are not afraid of mice, they are afraid of very small bugs like ants and bees because they can get up the, up the trunk and cause a lot of damage. So part of me wonders if between the inability or the apparent inability to tell when something is actually dead and when it's asleep and the fear of bugs, such as the ones that are very quickly attracted to corpses, um, has anything to do with this attempted burial slash hiding of bodies while they stand vigil, waiting to see if it whether the dead elephant is actually dead or not. But who knows? That's that's interesting. Very much just riffing. But I definitely it seems more like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, okay, well, if you're worried about getting hunted, like, and you think that your best buddy Steve that just died a few days ago might, you know, be super look like dinner time to the lions or whatever that live about in the same environment, I would want to get rid of my best buddy Steve too, you know, while still trying to <laughs> pay respects in some way. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. interesting. Which you're start you're starting to spoil me now. Well, let's uh, let's hear mm-hmm. all about what you're bringing to the table, then, Mariah. All right, let's move on to everybody's favorite uh, neighborhood menace: crows. Uh, of course, not everybody's favorite. Lots of people hate crows because they're noisy and they're wicked smart and will hold a grudge. Um, so crows, of course, are part of the family of corvids, which also includes ravens, mocking jays, blue jays, jays, ravens, crows. They're also technically songbirds because of the complexity of vocalizations and mimicry that they can do. They're not quite up there with parrots, but they're very, very close. Crows have also been shown to be able to identify and remember not only human faces, but themselves as separate from other crows, as well as individual crows outside of themselves, rather than going off of like, what's the situation? Who are you? What's the relation? They can identify each other and themselves, which is important to to know for how crow funerals tend to play out. So what is most commonly observed when a living crow finds a dead crow is that the living crow will send up an alarm cry and round up every crow in the area and they'll gather around the body and just scream for 15 to 30 minutes. So they're doing what's called mobbing, which is an anti-predator adaptation for smaller animals like crows. This is quite often how they would take down something like an eagle or a raptor is they would all attack it at once to get rid of it. So it's interesting that there's this kind of very raucous kind of super powered wake that goes on when they find one of their dead brethren, rather than being very quiet, like an elephant, party it up and then just scream for 15 to 30 minutes. My kind of party. (laughs) Right. Um, And this tends to be observed kind of across the board. There are some anecdotes that come in from civilians that haven't been backed up by researchers, but they're they're very common. So usually after the 30 minutes or so, most of the mob will disperse and go elsewhere. It's been reported that sometimes crows will come back or they'll stay and they'll gently touch the body. They'll kind of nudge it and poke it. Same as with elephants, kind of prodding folks and being like, hey, you up? <laughs> Situation. And the... Things that have been noted in civilian anecdotes is stories of members of the mob going away and then coming back with small sticks, which they then present to the deceased crow. This hasn't been backed up by researchers, but every researcher 
tells stories of if they mention that they're researching crows, everyone they talk to about crow funerals is like, yeah, I saw crows bringing sticks and stuff to the dead crow. So there's almost like a, a laying flowers on the casket sort of thing that seems to be going on. Aww. But also kind of like the elephants bringing sticks and grass and trying to hide the corpse. Crows don't seem to have quite the same level of mourning because rarely, and exceedingly rarely, if a breeding crow finds a dead crow during the breeding season, it may attempt to copulate with the corpse. Or if a breeding pair finds a corpse, they will attempt to copulate either with or on top of the corpse. Uh, to our to our <laughs> listeners, if you could see Janine and Janine's and I faces right now, um, we're grimacing. <laughs> we're grimacing. How's and... that for, for a morbid medley? Um, <laughs> two crows just trying to sleep with the dead crow. Just I, I don't know what it is about corpses that makes breeding crows extremely horny, but that one has been observed by researchers going, what the fuck is happening? What are we watching? Oh, God. <laughs> and they just have to watch, right? That's their job is to just watch. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. And so this is, this is of course, among wild crows. And it's really unclear as to why exactly this happens. If you want to hear more speculation about this in particular, there's an episode of Ologies by Ali Ward, which is a podcast called Corvid Thanatology with a crow thanatologist or crow death specialist um, named Kaylee Swift, which is a great episode of a great podcast, but it'll tell you more about the whole uh, trying to have a threesome with a corpse situation. <laughs> Can I just say that sounds like the best <laughs> job ever? Like right? the crow death specialist. Like how, much, how much more metal can you get? Jesus. I mean, it looks, I don't know if you're familiar with face recognition studies with crows and the masks that are used, but they look like something off of a cursed metal album. Uh, and that's part of the study with Corvid thanatologists as well, unfortunately, um, is you don't want to teach a crow that you are handling their dead in a way they don't like. Considering they copulate on top of their fallen brethren i kind of wonder what 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 exactly is seen as you know not respectful to a corpse in crow culture like if copulating (laughs) on top of one is an acceptable thing like how like what else is it like hitting it or kicking or you know further dismemberment like (laughs) is that unacceptable yeah yeah boning like cannibalism is (laughs) far from unseen among birds birds be eating each other all the time Right. It's a whole yeah. thing. But because we do tend to look at, you know, the activity of other animals through our the lens of our own experiences and understandings, there have been a lot of studies about what parts of the brain are acting up when crows are having this response. Um, right. And whether they're experiencing grief or, it ha- or if there's some other function to it. So because crows are tiny and you can't stick them through an fMRI and hope that they'll survive, Crow researchers tend to use what is called an FDG PET, which is like a tiny MRI. Um, The FDG in FDG PET stands for fluorodeoxyglucose, which is a modified glucose molecule with a radioactive tracker in it. So the way that this works is they'll catch a wild crow, bring it into the scan room, acclimate it a little bit, and then they'll give it this glucose molecule. And the glucose molecule is modified so that it doesn't get absorbed by the body. So when the body or when the brain tries to react to something, it 
intakes the glucose to that area in order to process things there. And the idea is that if the body doesn't absorb the glucose with the radioactive tracker in it, then you can see where that glucose has congregated in the brain. So once the birds have been given this modified glucose, they are shown a variety of stimuli. So this study that this article referenced only used seven subjects, which it claimed was a standard size for imaging studies. Don't know enough about like zoological studies to confirm or deny that, but that was the sample size. And they used a, they had four different things that they showed. Two were visual, two were auditory. And of course, in each pair, one was a control. So some of the birds were shown an image of a dead, unfamiliar songbird as the control and a dead, unfamiliar crow. And for the audio would be played recordings of unfamiliar crows begging as control, which I don't quite know what that means, but I think it's a type of call and a wild, unfamiliar set of crows reacting to dead crows. So doing the alarm call and then the raucous mobbing. They pre-selected five areas of the brain to look at that had to do with fear, spatial reasoning, executive decision-making and social behaviors. And what was interesting is when they then, you know, put these birds under, put them in the scanner and checked it out, there was very little difference between the control and the non-control for the visual and even less difference between the control and the fear response one, the mobbing crow sounds, um, than the first hmm. example. So there doesn't seem to be any actual recognition or fear part of it. So there's the question of why the reactions. Part of the potential flaws with the study is that crows essentially have a language. They kind of have a dialect that tends to be very group and context dependent. So that might be part of it. But so in the study put forward by Kaylee Swift, who I mentioned earlier, and her advisor, Dr. Marzoff at the University of Washington, called Wild American Crows Use Funerals to Learn About Danger. The theory is that the mobbing and following behaviors have to do with sussing out whether there is a novel threat, if there's something new and dangerous that has killed this fellow. So they observed that when crows found another dead crow, foraging in the area went down significantly as compared to when they found a different kind of dead bird, such as another songbird or an eagle or something like that, that seemed to suggest that they are like, something killed this guy. What was it? And the repeated returns have also been linked to slowly getting rid of the fear that this fellow crow was killed by a new novel threat. So there seems to be some amount of evolutionary basis for this particular grief behavior, which asks the question of, is there an evolutionary reason why humans grieve the way that we do? And I mean, I have thoughts on it because I've been in D&D parties where when your cleric goes down, your community is suddenly a lot weaker and because humans are also social animals, in my mind, it makes sense that the, the grief that would follow in the morning has to do at least partially with the fact that when you lose a community member, your ability to survive goes down. That's a thought. And those are crow funerals. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. So not, very... not quite as heartwarming as elephants, but very science-y. <laughs> very different, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some similarities there. And, like, if we were to throw humans in, there's definitely some similarities between elephants, crows, and humans. But I think that uh, they both have more in common with humans than they have in common with each other, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Which just goes to show the variety in the animal kingdom. 
I will say that I yeah. have observed that mobbing behavior twice, actually. Uh, and I didn't really? realize exactly what it was. But now that I know, that's that's interesting. Yeah, the, the place that Christy and I work, there's a lot of crows around, just generally. Oh, yeah, all the time, everywhere. And now that I think about it, both times that I've observed them, like, really going crazy, like, 100-plus crows all cawing at the same time. The first time was there was a hawk, I think, basically eating a dead crow. And then the second yeah. time, which was pretty recently, there was a, a human picking feathers out of a dead crow. And they oh, did, did right. not like that. Yeah. Uh, he was doing some other yeah. stuff, too. But, uh, yeah. The crazy, the crazy yeah. crow man. Yeah. Holding the feathers oh God, up. You guys have a crazy crow in man. In the street. Yeah. It was, it was odd. Oh, my God. Anyways. Yeah, so that's, as observed, <laughs> yeah, that's a good example of, of mobbing. Which might be part of why they're mobbing to start with. If they think that this death has to do with a novel predator... Then them mobbing the corpse, being like, go away, bad thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but crows are pretty fluid in their social structure as well. They'll be like, oh, I see your wife died. Let me just sneak on in here. <laughs> and everybody's just cool with it. <laughs> like, no value judgments on animal culture. And I think that similarity, that idea that they both have more similarities to us than to each other probably comes as well, too, from the fact that they're being studied by humans and kind of process through that lens yeah exactly yeah interesting let's see what kind of similarities reoccur with our last animal yeah christia what do you have for us well start off my section with um if you guys were to be reincarnated and you could choose what sort of creature or animal that you could come back as what would you choose? What would you what would you return to this fair plane of existence as if given the choice. Mm. We've had a second to think about this, and my brain's still like, should it be a cat? You just get to sleep all day. Yeah, that's a good answer. I would have many Um, answers. I don't think I could nail it down. Give me your top two or three if necessary. Okay. Oh, God. Well, obviously, I think elephants are pretty neat. Uh, They're big. Mm. They live Mm -hmm. a long time. The one elephant I referenced is 72 years old, so similar lifespan. Oh. They just get to roam the plains. They eat all day. <laughs> they eat all day long. <laughs> Vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> maybe. I also, I'm also fond of birds. I think owls are pretty cool. Keen eyesight. Night dwellers. They're you know. dumb as fuck, though, apparently. I Even guess, though like they're the culturally thing. associated <laughs> with wisdom. What? Yeah. Yeah, they're they have tiny tiny brains and they're very stupid birds. I've I've witnessed them being very stupid um, in person. Uh, I can't think uh, of any more, so let's just go with that. <laughs> my first thought, of course, is like a domestic cat, because why wouldn't she want to be a cat? As the Everybody song goes, everybody wants, wants to be, to be a, cat. a cat. A cat. Yeah, <laughs> but following from that. <laughs> honestly some sort of deep sea creature would be cool because one they live for hundreds of years and two i ain't ever seen any of that shit and i won't in my lifetime my body can't can't withstand the pressure but if i'm some sort of deep sea fish it's like being in space without having to leave the atmosphere that would be pretty cool it can look like an eldritch horror of the deep yeah why wouldn't i want to be Giant a several squid. hundred year old eldritch horror that humans can't access <laughs> <laughs> A very valid point. Um, How about you, Christy? From that, yeah, that's very similar to kind of what I would like to be reincarnated as, is I would like to be reincarnated as a whale shark, specifically. Um, Ooh. Because 
they're so big they don't really have any like natural predators and you just hang out and maybe i'll help a diver or something if i feel like it i don't know i'll eat some krill i'll eat some you know and kind of the (laughs) same reasoning behind uh janine's choice of an elephant you know so big i'll live a long time and i'll just chill and float about Mm -hmm. um if you haven't picked up on it yet uh, my animal is a whale for funerary rites nice. <laughs> and grief Ooh. and mourning. I will try not to reference Star Trek for the journey home too often, but that is a risk that you are having to take at this point. That is your trigger warning for this next 10 minutes. <laughs> Content warning. Star Trek. <laughs> Content warning. <laughs> Nuclear vessels. For all those diehard Star Wars fans who refuse Trek on principle. <laughs> hey, man. I like to dance between the, both. I, yeah. Media's a buffet. Why not partake? Exactly. Why not bloat myself? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> if you're a whale shark, you can absolutely do that. I'm just a whale shark for space media, apparently. Um, despite <laughs> having absolutely no desire to go to space. Um, space whale shark! Space whales! That's in Star Wars. Space There's, whale! By the way, there's space whales in Star Wars. Did you know that? There's space whales in Star Wars? Yes. But anyway, right now, we're not talking about space whales. We're talking about earth whales. Earth whales. Motherfucking earth whales. They are, according to Wikipedia, they are an informal grouping within the infraorder cetacea. Not to be confused with crustaceans, but cetacea. Hmm. And this excludes dolphins and porpoises, but whales, dolphins, and porpoises belong to the order of Cetartiodactyla. I think I did pretty good there. I think so too. Um, yeah. So we're going to be talking about everything from whales, dolphins, and porpoises, which all belong to Cetartiodactyla. Nailed it. So we could say for the for the porpoise of this episode, we're going to include those guys as whales. <laughs> I will fly through this <laughs> microphone and attack. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get Superman punched through this Discord call. Um, I'm getting a scowl f- from across the room for that pun. Um, so, <laughs> unlike my co-host, whales and dolphins are very intelligent creatures. Oh. That's too mean. No, I'm not gonna oh. say that. That's too mean. Oh, low blow. Um, <laughs> for the pointless of this, I am sad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lord. Uh, I'm sorry about that one. That one wasn't even half clever. <laughs> um, Anyways. That's probably staying in, by the way. Fair enough. Great. On to smarter sea creatures than I. <laughs> um, anyway. Whales and dolphins are very intelligent creatures. Um, they are known to learn, and they're known to speak to one another, and they also, like crows, have dialects, and they cooperate, and they play, and they are, just in general, they're, they're very intelligent. Um, they got big brains. a few of them also been CIA agents? What? What? I think there's been both, like, beluga and dolphin CIA operatives. That or FBI no operatives. News to the me. American government has used these kinds of animals in the past. Oh, awesome so Definitely smarter than me. I could not be a federal agent for the United States. So, Anyways. they're very intelligent. They can do a lot. Um, and I, if I have not mentioned this before, I have a degree in anthropology. Um, but I am no anthropologist. And there is a reason for that. But I will get into that another time. 
But I would argue that some whales even have some form of tool use, as they will use things such as bubble nets to feed in groups. So a bubble net, for those who are not aware, is when a group of whales will encircle a school of fish and they will exhale out of their blowhole, creating a big stream of bubbles that uh, forms like a column around the school of fish. And it traps and disorients all of the poor little fishies in the middle. And uh, once, you know, enough fish have been trapped, one of the whales will then sound a feeding call, screaming chow time. And all of those whales will rush up in the middle of that trap with their mouths open and feed on everything that they've managed to catch. Um, and then the water is filtered out and they get a big mouthful of tasty fish. Mm, fish. It sounds like you've described a, a, a Fantasia scene to me. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. This method is really more common with whales like humpbacks, uh, but orcas are also known to hunt in packs cooperatively, which is partially why they have been referred to as the wolves of the sea by some people. Um, in general, what I'm trying to get at here is whales are really intelligent. They play, they hunt, they have matrilineal family groups like elephants, they make bubble nets, but they have also shown signs of grieving. Now, when a whale dies, uh, it doesn't just float and only on very rare occasions does it get washed onto a beach. Instead, when a whale dies, it falls, and you actually get an environmental factor called a subtly named whale fall, which helps to actually create a localized ecosystem that can supply deep sea organisms like Mariah with enough food and sustenance for decades. <laughs> oh, oh, getting sassy. Wounded. <laughs> it's, it's our animal nature's coming out. The sea is out for my blood. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're just my passion bag <laughs> this episode. Um, That's fine, I can take it. <laughs> uh, so whales are social creatures. They, for the most part, they travel in pods. And because they travel in pods, you know, they have different social structures in place. Like I mentioned earlier, they are matrilineal. A lot of the grieving processes, I think, in the animal kingdom... Are, have been noted primarily by social animals. You know, you actually, ha they have the attachment to one another because, you know, you rely on other members of your pod or your pack or your herd to collect food sometimes. They're not necessarily all the time. So the grieving process has been witnessed in several different types of whales and porpoises. And in general, the most common act is the act of balancing a body on the nose and essentially preventing it from falling to the seafloor. If your whale buddy dies and it falls, you're never even going to, you're not going to have the opportunity like you will with crows and with elephants to come across that body again, because it, depending on where they are and how deep the floor is, like they will never have the opportunity to pass by mm -hmm. the corpse again, even though the corpse could sustain an ecosystem for the next, you know, several decades. But whales don't generally go to the bottom of the ocean. The most commonly witnessed act of grief with whales is generally with mothers and their young calves. It's been seen in adult Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins, spinner dolphins, orcas, Australian humpback dolphins, and sperm whales. There is a part in the Blue Planet 2, episode 4, 
where a pilot whale is shown pushing her stillborn calf around. But one of the most famous and most recent, I think, sightings of this act is that of J-35, otherwise known as Tahlequah. So in 2018, Tahlequah, otherwise known as J-35, was a female orca who was expecting her first calf not far from where I am right now in Victoria, Canada, and somewhere between here and the Washington coast. And the calf was born, but there is some debate over whether or not it actually lived for a few hours before the little calf died. J-35 proceeded to balance her dead baby on her nose and pushed it around for not several hours or for several days, but weeks. Um, Wow. 17 days to be exact, to the point where her baby was actively decomposing and falling apart. Oof. Something of interest here is that J-35, after what some people are referring to as her tour of grief, appeared to be in like perfect health. She didn't seem malnourished. She didn't seem like slower than any other members of the pod. So it is heavily believed by researchers, not that they actually witnessed this, but just judging by her good health, was that she had help carrying the baby. And essentially other, other members of the pod would have taken over for her and carried the baby for her when she grew tired or she needed to eat. Mm. There's no confirmation amongst researchers because I don't think they really know. But there is the potential that some of the calls that are made during this time are specific morning calls. They do have a language. They do have a way of communicating. And so I think there is a potential that they have something kind of like what the crows have. So there is the potential that they have some way of, you know, crying out or at the very least signifying that they are in mourning. Although we don't know really for sure yet because the research isn't isn't there yet. But this is most commonly seen with infant or juvenile whales, like young, very small whales being balanced on the nose. Makes me think about how whales might actually want to be able to help their fully grown pod members who die stay afloat, but because they're so big, they just can't, which is just kind of sad to think about. Yeah. It was really interesting because I remember when Tahlequah was uh, undergoing her, pushing her baby around, it said that she like, could have traveled up to like a thousand miles. Ooh. If you think of how far a whale can get in 17 days, this was not a short process, just kind of going to show the depth of emotion that she was feeling. And, you know, a lot of people have interpreted this in a lot of different ways. This does fit the definition of grief that we had earlier on, as, you know, the mother and other members of the pod are, they're helping the mother along. The mother is probably, you know, she's she's not malnourished, but she's probably not eating as much. She's probably sleeping less, just trying to, you know, her baby afloat. And um, they're attending the corpse and essentially making it swim for one last time, or the first time in some cases. Mm-hmm. as with the pilot whale. But it's it's interesting how other animals in the great animal kingdom are able to go through the same emotional processes that bring us down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually, now that I'm thinking of it, titling the episode, Morning in the Animal Kingdom, humans are part of the animal kingdom too. Humans are animals! But, we just uh, are happen to be social animals, like all of the animals that we've discussed today, which makes sense that there would be grief and or mourning practices among social groups because part of being a social animal is that your society has to survive for everyone to survive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I didn't, like, I kind of knew that in the back of my mind, but I didn't make that explicit connection. It's like, oh, in order to grieve something, you have to have some kind of connection to it, right? To mourn Mm -hmm. over something. You have to have that connection. And I don't know, maybe in lone animals, maybe, but that's not any of the examples that we chose. So it just happened to be social animals, which does lend itself more to that social connection and that mourning process. So Mm I was going to say something I noticed halfway through recording this is we all actually chose creatures from like different environments. Like we have birds, we've got the air, we've got the water and we've got just, you know, land animals. So this isn't restrictive to one type or environment. So so society is everywhere, even in the animal kingdom. And part of being in a society is grieving members of the society who have passed on. Absolutely. Well said. So get vaccinated. Wear a mask. You're part of a society and your life is important for all of us. Uh, We live in a society. (laughs) We live in a society. Uh... Yeah, which it does make me wonder if there are observed grief slash mourning practices among more solitary animals. I don't know. Sounds like, animals... uh, sounds like animal researchers have some more work to do. At the behest of us mere, mere podcasters. <laughs> the mere behest of us historians. And literature nerds. Yeah. Yep. Why don't you go do some research about it, <laughs> scientists? <laughs> In conclusion. In conclusion. Animals are cool. Humans are animals too. Uh, we live in a society. Protect your fellow society members. Uh, and yeah. thank you for listening. Yeah. We'll catch thank you, you so much for time. listening. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Save the whales. Save the whales, save the crows, save the elephants, save the fucking planet, people. Save the planet. Vote. vote. If you're in Canada, make sure you are ready to vote in September. It is September. Climate change. It is September. Later in September. This episode's gonna come out after the election. Damn. I hope you voted. Slash vote in the future.